Thank you, Martine. What words those are. I mean, words that are at the very core of our faith. It is by grace that you have been saved. This is a gift from God. And then in what almost feels like a little gift, a little appendix at the end, this affirmation that you are the workmanship of God. You are the creative output of the master designer and creator. And from his workshop, you emerge with purpose, the purpose to do good works. Uh, We are spending these weeks exploring the deeper subject of holiness, what it means to live our lives rooted and grounded in Christ. Holiness is the natural outflow of that relationship. It's not prudishness. It's not moral supremacy. It is what emerges when we live our lives grounded in Christ. God is holy. Would not make it make sense that we, like him, grow in holiness. So let me say good morning to all of you. Good morning to those of you who are joining us online. As we're tracking through that subject, how can we not talk about our work? How many of the hours of our waking days are spent at work? And when we're speaking of work, we're not just thinking about employment, not just the paycheck that you earn, but all the areas of responsibility and enterprise in which you are engaged. That's all work. I want to offer you a a statement and then unpack it just a little bit and, and see if this makes sense to you. But here's the statement. Your work the work of your life, will make no sense to you until you put it in the context of some kind of story. Your work work will make no sense until you embed it in a story. Let me just give you a couple of examples. There are a lot of Christians for whom the story runs something like this. When I'm at church doing church things, I'm doing God's work. But out there... I'm just trying to make a living. It's just a job. I work out there in order to provide for my family and so that I can make the resources, the money that enables the ministry that goes on in here. This is the sacred stuff. This is God's work. We fund mission and missionaries who are also doing God's work. But when I'm out there, that's the secular world. That's a necessary evil. That is the work that I have to do. But it is not the work that God gives me to do. Now, that's a story. And in fact, I think it's a story that's true for lots of people. But the difficulty with that story is that it means you make very little effort to see what you will spend 80% of your time doing as a reflection of the outflow of a life in Christ of God's life in you. It may be necessary, your work. It may even be important, but it won't feel holy. I mean, just do a a, a sort of a ground level check, a gut check. How many of you would say the work you do is holy work? Yeah, one or two. Yeah, one or two. I want you to be able to say that about the output of your life, that it is holy Work. We use the word holy. What, what we're saying is that it is living out the purpose and design for which you were intended. You remember that definition of perfection? God is perfect. 
So be perfect, and we say, wow, that's impossible. And it is if we think of perfect in terms of perfect moral track record. Yeah, but there's another way that we use the word perfection. Perfection means living out the purposes for which you were intended. This sweater is perfect. That doesn't mean that it doesn't have some some pulls in it and some runs, but it's perfect for this weather. It fits me Perfectly, well, I don't know, it seems to. But, but by perfect, it doesn't mean flawless, it means it serves the purpose for which it was intended. Now, for those of you who are wondering, is there a sense in which our lives will become flawless? Yeah, there is. But that's in Christ, that's through Christ. That's the words that Martine read for us. This is the free gift of God, that, that Christ wraps himself around us, and when God looks, he sees the beauty of who Jesus is. But in between our now, and are then, when everything gets made perfect in every sense, there's still a perfection to which we aspire. It's living out our design. So let me give you another story and try and situate your work inside of this story. It's a biblical story. In fact, this is the big story of the Bible. And if you were here last week, you recognize these categories. The big arc of the Bible is this, creation and then fall, and then redemption. Creation, fall, redemption. And, and it gives you a pattern for understanding the work output of your life. Creation. Unless, unless you understand and embrace God as the creator of all good things, and therefore the work of God as something to be echoed and mirrored in our lives, Work is never going to feel anything more than a burden, a task, a secular priority, but not holy. The world itself, with all of its diversity and beauty, is the artistry of God. God is a worker. This was a revolutionary idea in the ancient world. Most of the other uh, false religions in the ancient world imagined that the gods created human beings to do the work so that they could rest. The gods were lazy and they were fickle. Human beings were the workhorses of the world. God says, no, no, I'm the worker. And, and, and I invite you, because I have placed within you a little bit of who I am, the image of God, to live that identity out in your life. That you are, in a sense, co-creators or sub-creators with God. Because God is an artist, we're capable of beauty in the arts. Because God is productive in the way that he designed and fashioned the world, we can be productive in the way that we, we allocate and resource and produce things and give them into the life of the world. Unless you understand God is the creator, I don't think you'll fully enter into the story of how your work is part of God's ongoing creation. And it is. Now, the fall. Um, the fall is as easy to prove a subject as any subject in the world. When we say we fall, what we mean is that, that the design of God that was meant to be imprinted on the world and printed in our lives has ceased to be in all the ways that he imagined it would be. Why? Because God is a lover of human persons. 
And he loves human persons enough that he dignifies them with the ability to choose and even to choose things that will distort and fracture his design for the world. That's sin. When we talk about the fall, it doesn't just mean that morally we make some mistakes, not that we're as bad as we could be. What we learned is, at least in seminary when we were, they were teaching this, is that the fall means it's not just that you're always bad, it's that if sin were blue, you'd kind of be blue all over. Meaning that there is not a part of your life that this fallenness does not distort. Your will, your emotions, your public life, your private life, it all gets distorted, including your work. And let's not pretend that everything in here is sacred and therefore beautiful and honoring to God and everything out there is fallen, fractured, and dishonoring to God. Everything is blue. It runs blue through and through. Now, that sounds like bad news, and probably it is, but that's not the end of the story. It does explain why in the workplace there are so many catastrophic situations, challenges to your integrity, situations of injustice, Bosses who just seem to be intolerable human beings and bosses, employees are just as intolerable. In the work that you do in the home, in the community, as volunteers, there are things that are beautiful and there are things that just try your patience. Well, we were joking in between the services that God calls us to love all people, but there are some pretty unlikable people that you meet in the workplace. And we say we love them, but I just flat out, I don't like them. I mean, that... The world is blue through and through. It's fallen. But that's not the end of the story. The story of God in the world, his ongoing work, because his work isn't just creation. You can imagine if you created something and then, and then you found it in a state of disrepair, would not the creator's heart want to restore it to what it was? That's what God is doing. That is the work of redemption. Not just that sins are forgiven, but that a new life has come into you. That's what it means to be in Christ. You are a new creation. Stuff is getting made new in you, and through your work, stuff is getting made new in the world. That's the narrative. Creation, fall, redemption. And we're going to tease that out just a little bit in our lives in Christ. Again, because if you do the simple mathematics, unless we can ground holiness in this area of our life, Boy, it's going to be hard to see ourselves as holy people through and through. In fact, let's do the math. Get your calculators out, which are phones, I guess, these days. Get your phones out. Do some math with me. This is to, to challenge the old sacred-secular divide. Let's imagine you devoted church-going people, that you, the ever-faithful ones, you are committed to attending church every week. God bless you. Two hours a week, every week. You do that. 52 weeks a year, never miss a Sunday. And God blesses you with 75 years of life. So punch that into your calculators. Two hours, 52 weeks, 75 years. Two times 52 times 75, what do we get? Who's doing the math? 7,800 hours, just under 8,000 hours. That's the sacred stuff. That's God's work. Now, let's take... What used to be the typical work week, 40 hours, and I know we're being conservative there because that's just not really true anymore, is it? Right? 
COVID upended the world, and now you're at work before you realize it, as soon as you flip on your computer because you're working at home, and you don't flip it off until 9 o'clock at night. But let's, for the sake of simple math, 40 hours a week, 48 weeks a year, because you've got a great boss, and she gives you four weeks of vacation. But 40 hours a week, 48 weeks a year, and you do that for 40 years. 40 times 48 times 40 is... 76,800, 10 times. You will spend 10 times as much time in work. And if you were to add to work the employment work, how about all the other areas where you work? Raising a family, taking care of a home, volunteering in a community, all of that. You're going to spend exponentially more time at work than at worship. Wouldn't it be tragic if you saw worship as the only sacred area of your life, the only area where we cultivate holiness and not work? The language for this is the language of vocational holiness. Vocation is a synonym for work, except that it's not. Um, Vocation actually has the, the, the sense of calling. Somebody is calling you out, or somebody is calling this out of you. I know we've talked about this before, but you know the word vocation because you know all of its sort of parallels. Vocate, vocal cords. This is what you use to speak or sing. Somebody is speaking in a way that draws you out or draws something out of you. That is your vocation. When you look at the life of Jesus, I think you will be struck by the simplicity and the focus of his work, of his vocation. He knew his calling. In fact, he was laser-focused on what his calling was. And yet, never do you get the sense that he's rushed or, or anxious or desperate about his ministry. He knew what he had to do, and he was prepared quite literally to die for the work of his life. And he was able to say, as he was nearing the end of that work, this is John 17, verse 4, he was able to say, speaking to God, God, I have glorified you on earth, By finishing what? The work that you gave me to do. That clarity is an essential part of vocational holiness. On any given day or at the end of any season of our life, to be able to say, today, this week, this season, I have glorified God and completed the work that God gave me to do. And that's, uh, again... That has to do with more than just your paycheck work. Instead, maybe maybe instead of work, think of assignments. That 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 all these these assignments that God can give you to parent your children, or to take care of an elderly neighbor, or to manage a small business, or teach an ESL class, or tend to a community garden, all assignments, all the work of your life. But whatever it is, there are a few things that will matter to you more than knowing in the depths of your heart that God, the creator, God, the redeemer, is calling you to these assignments in your life. That these aren't just distractions robbing you of time better spent elsewhere. That these are, in fact, the gift of God and that the work that you do gets offered back to him as a kind of thankful praise. Does that make sense? That, that work isn't something that pulls you away from real, godly, holy activities. That work is 
the godly, holy activity of your life. And we need God's people dispersed in every area of life, in every sector of the marketplace, in every volunteer community, wherever people are, we need God's people to be. It's not an accident where God has you. When we talk about vocational holiness, we're going to be talking about two things. The first is this this idea that we live in response to a call. God is calling something out of us. We're not sort of just herded in a direction, though in high school, I don't know, you ever feel like you're being herded in a certain direction? We're not herded, we're invited, we're summoned. Vocation is an invitation. And here's the second thing, not just vocation is a call. Vocation, the language of vocation, assumes that more is not necessarily better. God is calling us to some things God is calling us to refrain from some things. And and let's just be honest. We need to speak about vocation against the backdrop of a generation of people, a generation of Christians who are driven relentlessly by by hectic activity. We're just inclined to assume that the busier we are, the holier we are. That old mantra, you know, pray more, give more, work more. It's exhausting, isn't it? And it makes us think that we're always coming up short and we're never able to rest. So I want you to hear me on this. And you can play this back to me the next time I call and say, hey, do you have time to volunteer and this or that? We are called to do some things and we are called to refrain from some things. That balance between work and rest is written into the very fabric of, of creation. Listen to Gordon Smith, the writer of that book called To Be Saints that you're studying in small groups. He says that we tend to assume that important people are busy people and that devoted people are even busier. But vocational holiness means embracing what we're called to do and graciously declining what we are not called to do. clock is frozen at the back. I thought, how can I have that much time still? (laughs) Yeah. Here's what I'd like to do just for about 10 minutes. I I want you to, or I want to help us think about vocation, about understanding what that might mean in your life. And, And I want to do it by situating vocation, God's call for purposeful work, by situating it at the intersection, if you'd like, of three realities. The first reality is the purposes of God in the world. What are God's purposes? What is it that God is about? What is it that we should be doing if we are in alignment with him? The second is by understanding the way that God made us personally. God has not produced 8 billion clones on the world. There is something unique and purposeful about the way you are made. And the third thing is the circumstances in which we find ourselves. Because your work will be different than your grandfather's work. By necessity. Because the world is different than it was in your grandmother's day. So let's, let's unpack those. The first one, vocation is a reflection of God's purposes in the world. Good work, by definition, good work is work that will reflect the purposes of God in the world. Remember, God is a worker. 
God is a worker. Holiness recognizes the work we do as a way of reflecting the work of God. Uh, And good work will never be contrary to the work of God. It will always line up. The scriptures portray God as somebody who creates and redeems. One psalm after another praises God for his work and for his redemption. We celebrate the good work of Christ. The work of his living, dying, and, and rising, the, the pouring out of the Spirit, and the, the dream, the trajectory of faith that moves towards a day when all is made well. But in between creation and redemption, this span of time, there's work that we've been given to do. And one of the deep longings, I think, that we have is to do good work. Work that taps into our talent and our skill. Work that requires diligence. Work that produces joy. And so, I guess what what I wanted to say most here is that work is a gift. Honestly, how many of you feel that? Work is a gift. Hmm. Sometimes we... Sometimes we think of work as a punishment. We do. And we read the Genesis story about, about the fall. And after the fall, you know, you, you will only prosper through the work of your hands. And, and work is a punishment. It's a necessary evil to provide for the needs of our families and enable us to do the things that give us real purpose and joy in life. But work is not a gift. Work is part of what it means to be created by God, not punishment. It's what it means to be a little bit like the God who made us. The rhythms of work and rest. Listen to how Genesis puts it. It says, by the seventh day, Genesis 2.2, after seven days, God had finished the work he had done. And on the seventh day, he rested. Work and rest, work and rest. They are the gifts of God. One of the most powerful demonstrations, if you want a, uh, a little example, of good work in the scriptures is found in Proverbs 31. Have a look at Proverbs 31. If you've heard this passage at all, you probably heard it because you were here on Mother's Day. And we read this passage every Mother's Day because it, it's titled or subtitled The Portrait of a Noble Woman. And it is that. But it's also a stunning portrayal of good work. Listen to what it says. Describing this woman, she manages her home. She's a buyer and seller in the marketplace. She works with her hands. She's creative and attentive to beauty. There's a public side to her work, but she also works in quietness and obscurity. She's celebrated for the mundane and ordinary activities of her life and also recognized for things that are grand and heroic. Good work. There are within Proverbs 31, and within the entire sphere of human endeavor. There are two expressions of work in particular that, that I wanted to draw out with you. The first is the call to, I'm going to use the word business here. That doesn't mean busyness or it doesn't always mean commerce, but the call to business, the production of goods and services. Remember, we are co-creators. We are sub-creators. We get to take what God has made and arrange it and package it and design it and and release it to the world in ways that are necessary and wonderful. There is a call to business. 
And some of you have it. But there's also a calling to the arts, to the cultivation of beauty, beauty in homes, beauty in the workplace, beauty in places of of learning or worship, beauty. Artistry is part of the work of human beings. God is an artist. To be created in his image means to love and cultivate the arts. And and there are those who, who will view as skeptical Anyone involved in business because we're kind of skeptical about money and the accumulation of money. And there are those who view the arts as unnecessary because we're pragmatists. Regardless of where you fall, I, I hope you'll hear what seems to be the witness of Scripture in the examples of people that it lifts up. That God calls artists and business people and educators and workers and parents in every sector of society. And to follow God means to follow that example of a creator and a redeemer and do good work. So that's, that's the first of, those, first of those intersections. To do good work means that you understand your vocation is a reflection of God's work, God's purposes. Here's the second. Vocation is a celebration of the way that God has made you. Vocational holiness is kind of, it's fancy language for saying, live your life in a way consistent with the way you have been designed. Again, that beautiful scripture, you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good work that God has prepared for you in advance to do. I mean, there's this area of work that God had in mind, and you are the one he had in mind to do it. And maybe if you don't do it, it doesn't get done. You bring something to the world that God thought was so important in the world that he made you to do it. There is, again, no such thing as just a generic person, like pawns on a board that God is moving around. No, God has created and endowed us for purposeful work, and that's a reflection of our identity and our gifts. And and we draw this out in two ways. It involves self-awareness. You need to know who you are and how you're made and it involves self-acceptance. On the self-awareness piece, around here we, we use the acronym SHAPE. It's been a while. We should probably repeat the SHAPE series. But SHAPE, the understanding of how God has fashioned you. SHAPE stands for spiritual gifts, heart, abilities, personality, and experience. That is your SHAPE. You have to be aware of that. What is it that that you're passionate about or joyful about? What do you want? What matters to you most? Henri Nouwen called this living according to your necessity. What matters most about you? These are the words on the screen. What matters most about you is what matters most to you. Does that make sense? What matters most about you is what matters most to you. What is it that makes you angry? What breaks your heart? What do you long for more than anything else? What is it that you need to do? What matters most about you is what matters most to you. That's not to say that talent doesn't matter, but talent and ability, these things are in service to your necessity. Sometimes we go the other way around. We say, well, this is your talent, this is what you should do. Well, not always. What is it that that matters most to you. And then you will master a craft, whatever it is, web design or public speaking or 
driving a bus or administration, whatever it is, you'll master a craft so that you can fulfill your calling. Talent is not the same as calling. Talent is in service to your calling. So there's this self-awareness that goes on. And then there is self-acceptance. And this, this happens in a couple of ways. You need to be gracious in accepting your strengths. Here's what I'm good at. You know, we're afraid of pride. Pride doesn't mean denying the things that you're good at. It means accepting what you're good at, but holding it lightly so that you don't get all puffed up about it. But more importantly, it also means accepting your limits. Limits are not problems. They are an opportunity to focus, to embrace your calling. A limit is just a non-strength. How many of you job interviews get that one dread question? Hey, what are your weaknesses? What are your weaknesses? Um, And I get where the question is coming from, but sometimes I just want to leap in and say, hey, you're not hiring me for my weaknesses. Those are not my strengths. Those are my non-strengths. And instead of thinking about my non-strengths, let's think about how my strengths will be at play in this area of work. Make sense? These are the limits that get placed around our calling. And here's the third area of intersection, the purposes of God in the world, understanding how God has designed you. And here's the third one. Vocation is always rooted in the circumstances of our lives. It's specific to a time and to a place. Listen to what Gordon Smith says here. He says, it means that we turn not only from pretense, wishing that we were someone else or acting as though we were someone else, Particularly when we think about vocational holiness, we want to act like a holy person doing holy things in their holy place. It doesn't work. Uh, We turn not only from pretense, but also from wishful thinking and an illusion regarding our circumstances. It means we don't live emotionally in a previous time, and we have no patience for the good old days. They are long gone. Instead, we discern in light of what is actually the case today. And it also means we don't engage in wishful thinking. We don't dwell on what we wish were true, but on what is actually true. Any of you here golfers? Kevin, you're a golfer. Any other golfers here? In golfing language, this would be called playing your lie. I'm a terrible golfer, so playing my lie often means I have to play the ball where it landed, and where it landed is rarely ever good. It's way off in the woods or in the deep rough, but playing your lie means you play your ball where it landed, and you don't complain about where it landed. Like, I can't believe that the groundskeepers here at this course left all this long grass here. You don't complain about the distractions. Those kids over the fence line are so noisy, I can't concentrate. You don't complain about your foursome. What a load of rubbish these three I have to golf with. They're not bringing out the best in me. Their cell phones are always on, whatever. You don't complain. You play your lie. We are called to such a time as this. None of us have arrived ahead of our time. No one is born too late. This is the moment that God has given you. And there's no sense nostalgically yearning for something that once was or wishfully thinking about something that isn't yet and you wish it were the case and I'm going to wait till that happens before I get involved. We fulfill our vocation 
as we learn to respond to the opportunities in front of us right now and accept the constraints on our lives that are right now. The one side of the equation means that we're always looking for openings, invitations from the Spirit to step out. What is this venture that you're leading me to, God? Maybe it involves some risk, but I'm willing to risk it because I see that you're in it. But the other side of the occasion of the equation is just as, as crucial. We learn to accept and live within the constraints of our lives. And maybe this season the constraints are different than they used to be and you're having trouble with them. Maybe you decline an opportunity because of a spouse's failing health. And you understand that is one of the primary assignments of your life right now. Maybe you're called in this chapter of life to be present with a child who's going through some physical or emotional disability and they need you. That is the assignment of your life. That is the environment for holiness. Maybe you accept the limits of your own health, graciously acknowledging that that you may need to say no to an opportunity now that you would have said yes to five years ago because it requires a level of physical strength you don't have anymore. You just say, I'm sorry, no thank you. One of the most obvious constraints is time itself. I was reading about this during the week and, and I realized how hard this one has been for me to accept. Time is a gift, not a curse. To live in faith means to live with gratitude and graciously accept the number of hours given to our days. And so Gordon Smith writes, you stop complaining about time as though God didn't give us enough of it. If it's a gift, it's not something about which we complain. And then, and here's the part that was biting for me. And then we come to accept that hurried, hectic, frenetic, or anxious work is a sign of a lack of vocational holiness. We don't need to be impressed with people who overwork. Those who get by just fine on three hours of sleep a night. We learn to leave enough margin in our day so that we can respond to the unexpected because the unexpected always happens. Overcome the the tendency to overcommit. This has practical consequences for the way we work. And if you're looking for practical holiness, here's a few things that you might consider. If you say that you'll do something, it means that you have the time to do it. Otherwise, you don't say yes. You keep your word and you complete your work in timely fashion. I guarantee you, if you are in the marketplace, they will love that about you. It means living graciously with an ordered pace to your life. And if by noon you're already exhausted because you are back to back to back and always late, there is something there in the area of vocational holiness that probably needs to be shored up. What are the constraints that you have not been able to honor in your life? Where have you said yes when you should have said no? And I know sometimes you've got a, a boss who's breathing down your neck. and I'm a boss, so you can blame me. <laughs> Timely work means you don't procrastinate because you understand that this is the work God has given me do, to do today, and I will do it today. 
And it means that we know that, in a sense, time is probably our greatest resource. And we will choose very carefully where we invest it. All of us. All of us need to learn when and where to turn off our phones. So we can focus on what's right in front of us because it matters. We need to learn to turn away from distraction, a computer game, a a Netflix premiere, a phone call from a friend, all easily justified, right? But we know if we're honest with ourselves that they will keep us from what matters most in the moment. And God's call in our life is for the moment. It's not for the moment that passed and it's not for the one that is yet to be. Vocational holiness recognizes that that God's call is situated here and now in the circumstances of our life, and it flows out of our identity as people who are in Christ. Well, thinking of time, you've been gracious with yours. So let me let me wrap it there with a, an invitation to uh, to join me in, in reading together a scripture that that really is the form of a prayer. We'll use this, I'll invite the worship team to come join me on the stage. We'll, we'll use this as our closing prayer for today. As we're thinking about invitations, if, if you've not had a chance to get connected with one of our small groups, uh, we'll put up at the end of the message a slide that has some of the small group opportunities. It's one of dozens that are there, but just examples. You'll be unpacking some of this material during the week. And as always, if, if there are thoughts that have come to mind now or during the week, if you have questions or observations, send them to us, and we'll weave those in to the message next Sunday. But let's, let's read together the words of Psalm 90, verse 17. Will you pray with me these words? Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and prosper the work of our hands. Yes, prosper the work of our hands. Amen. God bless you. Thank you.